monsters, madness, and Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I am Justin, no co-host today, but I do have two very special guests with us, Dr. Manuel Trummer and the Bard of Bavaria himself, Mr. Marcus Becker of the almighty Atlantean Codex. Gentlemen, how the hell are you? Uh, great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Manuel, how about yourself? How are you doing today? Doing good. Thanks for having us. That's great. Uh, so, Manuel, you founded the band in 2005. Uh, Marcus and the other guys joined and uh, two years later. So take us through the early years. Were you just trying to find your sound and how did you and Marcus come to meet? Oh dear. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's 15 years already and uh, quite a lot of things happened during that time. But I guess the one formative moment uh, was when uh, Florian, our bass player, and myself um, attended the, the Earthsh Earthshaker Festival in 2005 with Man of War headlining. Mm. And um, they announced it with a huge orchestra and uh, they announced a pretty huge show. And when, when we were in front of the stage, it was quite disappointing. We were both lifelong Manowar fans and um, we sat there thinking, man, we should, we should do a band ourselves, which sounds like the old Manowar, the real Manowar. And um, I think that this was the moment the band was born. And some weeks later, we met um, at my place and started exchanging the first few riffs. Uh, the first song um, uh, was written um, during this first session, which was uh, From Shores Forsaken. This was like the first Atlantean Codex riff ever written. And wow. it turned into the first Atlantean Codex song. Um, yeah, well, ever written as a whole song. And yeah. Then um, sometime later, I think in 2006 or seven, we released um, the Hidden Folk EP, a 12-inch split EP with Vestal Claret on the other side, which is a band project of Phil Swanson, who a lot of you might know from his various projects, Our 13, Vestal Claret, and some more. And um, uh, as soon as we released this first 12-inch uh, EP, um, the feedback was quite amazing. It was a lot of positive feedback and people started you know pushing us you need to play live shows and and so we started thinking about forming a real band and um, that's when Mario joined us our drummer and uh, Marcus joined us because it proved to be quite difficult working with Phil be uh, not because he's a bad person not at all but uh, it's complicated uh, 
with him sitting in Connecticut and with us in Bavaria. He's a great guy, but, you know, working across the ocean, it didn't feel like a real band. Right. Uh, playing a real band means you have to work in the rehearsal space and you need to get together five persons in a room to work on the songs. At least that's our understanding of what a real band um, should be like. And so we asked Marcus um, to join us as a singer. Um, I'm glad he did say yes. Uh, back then we met a few years before at the Keep It True Festival and mm. in this uh, local scene around the True Festival, so we knew each other already. And um, the last one to join was uh, Michael Koch, uh, Michael Koch, um, as the second guitar player, because um, around 2008, um, shit got serious and uh, we played the first live shows. I think we played the first live show in 2009. At Keep It True Festival, we wow. did only one small rehearsal gig in front of 50 people. And then the first real Atlantic Codex show was in front of 2,000 people at Keep It True Festival, which wow. was a pretty frightening experience, <laughs> to say the least. But I'd say that was, that, was, that was Venom style, you know, do it big or don't do it at all. <laughs> Go home. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, uh, whenever I listen to the audios of the show, it's just it's just horrible. So we, uh, it wasn't really good. But nevertheless, so we we released uh, the Pnocotic Demos EP around that time, which um, gained even more positive feedback. And that's when we knew, man, we obviously made it. We, we're a real band and people want to listen to our stuff. And that's when things got rolling. We, um, Crucial Sur Music got in touch with us uh, for, for a full album deal. And uh, 2010, we released the Golden Bow, Bow album, which um, again <laughs> um, received um, amazing feedback. Uh, it was a debut album and it went straight to the pole position of Rock Hard magazine, which back then was Germany's number one um, metal uh, magazine. Um, we played a lot of gigs in, in Europe and 2013 um, brought the White Goddess album. And yeah, that's when I think we established ourselves as a household name. And right. I, I even think we, we have a little part in this um, comeback of traditional epic metal with bands like uh, Eternal Champion and Wizigoth, Gatekeeper and uh, Mega. You have a huge part in that. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but you have a huge part in that. You don't have to be yeah. humble about it. I'll say it for you. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's it basically. So it's not a really uh, thought out band history. It's just, uh, yeah, things happening. We didn't plan anything and there was no strategy behind it other than sounding like Manowar and Bathory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this was our main um, strategy. Yep. Uh, well, and just things pieced themselves together, you know, got uh, fell together and uh, everything evolved in a kind of natural way. It's funny when, when Manuel tells the story, it sounds as if, you know, everything all along the way went, you know, very smoothly and, and you know, we almost had to do nothing. But I mean, when you look at the detail, details, then of course we had to overcome quite a few obstacles. Like, for example, the fact that, you know, when they replaced the American singer with a German, then one year later, the German decides to go to America for a couple of years. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> the, the, this first gig that Manuel spoke of, um, I wasn't even there. So I had to be replaced for a couple of gigs because I was in the States at the time. Wow. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I, you know, I recorded the, the, the first demo with the band in, in 2007. And then after that, right after that, I went to the States. And um, so, yeah, I, I couldn't, you know, couldn't make it back then. And uh, yeah, I wasn't part of that experience. Um, yeah. And then, you know, recording the first album, it was also not so easy, um, you know, because I had to, you know, travel to Germany to record stuff and, flew back and then you know we uh listened to all the tapes 
uh, from afar and stuff. So it, it, it sounds very like we were in that flow, but yeah, it wasn't <laughs> that easy at the time. And then when we, when we did start playing gigs together in I think 2001, was it 10 or 11 or so? Um, you know, every time I had to fly to Europe to play one gig in, for example, I don't know, in Dublin or whatever, and I spent the weekend in Dublin and then flew back to the States. <laughs> I mean, the, the really cool fact about that is that, you know, this stuff got paid. So we didn't have to pay this out of pocket, which was, of course, for us being nobody was just great, you know. Right. So, yeah, yeah but th those were the early days obstacles, I would say. Yeah, that's, that's quite right. I think when looking back upon one's biography or history, it's quite typical that people are telling it as a coherent story. Right. But uh, Marcus is absolutely right. It's not a coherent story at all. Um, <laughs> a lot of it didn't really make sense. Uh, but <laughs> it probably still does. <laughs> yeah, but in the end, uh, it, it went pretty well. And so here we are. I had no idea that From Shores Forsaken was the very first song. That's one of my favorite songs. Um, yeah. What, who did you say the original vocalist was? I wasn't aware. That. Uh, Phil Swanson. Phil Swanson. From, uh, 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 Hour of 13 and uh, Vesla Claret, uh, Summerlands. Summerlands, there we go. Yes. Yeah, uh, right. uh, okay, gotcha. I did not even know yeah. that. That's, that's cool. Yeah, we, re we released one song with him, uh, which was uh, The Hidden Folk. Um, and it was published on a split 12-inch um, with one of Phil's other bands with Vestal Claret. This was the first song ever released, but the first song ever written uh, was um, From Shores Forsaken. I tell every... Uh, I was talking to Marcus before you got in here that um, I found the band through, I think, a YouTube algorithm, and I just clicked it, and that's it. I'm, I'm here talking to you guys now. And I tell everyone that Marcus is one of my favorite vocalists because I just feel that he fits your theme. Uh, the sound of his voice fits your theme so well, almost bard-like. Is did you feel the same way when you heard him sing? Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, you know, um, um, yeah, it's it's a bit hard for me now to talk while he's here. But <laughs> um, to me, his he's he's not that typical met, heavy metal screamer. You know, right? Like no, no. big balls, uh, powerful screams, because I feel this wouldn't fit to Atlantean Codex at all. There is so much melancholy in our songs. Uh, there are feelings of nostalgia. There are a lot of emotions, a really wide emotional spectrum. And I think uh, his voice, his clear, almost folky kind of voice, a folk rockish kind of vo voice, really fits it perfectly. Um, maybe if you're familiar with the British band Solstice, the epic oh, yes. doom band Solstice, um, the singer they had on the New Dark Age album, he also um, ha had this very special quality. You know, Sources had this huge, powerful, heavy riffing, but they had this very delicate, melancholic voice, and this was kind of what I had in mind back then. And uh, Marcus' voice uh, delivers just that. At least uh, sure. that's my <laughs> humble opinion. And, and besides, I couldn't do it any other way anyway, because that's just the way I can, <laughs> I can sing. You know? but he, would, he, would, actually, would... he, he actually can scream. We just don't use it that often, because uh, most of the time it doesn't really fit. Yeah. It's, <laughs> but, it's probably not my strong suit, though. But, I mean, yeah, uh, I, I, I would. it's even harder to talk about myself now. But, I mean, I, I would agree that it sort of uh, fits the, this whole... The, the, the whole Atlantic Code is atm atmosphere that, that Manuel is trying to create with his songs. He was talking about mel melancholy and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so I, I guess um, for some reason it, it, really, it really fits. Right. 
So I'll just ask this to both of you guys. Uh, what are some of your formative albums? Um, Into Glory Ride, Twilight of the, uh, To Glory Ride by Manowar, Twilight of the Gods by Bathory, um, New Dark Age by Solstice, um, uh, loads of stuff by Manila Road, by um, Early Fates Warning, like Awaken the Guardian, um, a lot of new wave of British heavy metal. Oh, but I guess that, maybe. Uh, at least in my case, it all comes down to um, early Manowar and the Viking era of Bathory. This is like my you know Hammerheart. Um, yeah Hammerheart mm -hmm. um, Twilight of the Gods and Into Glory Ride which is like the Holy Trinity Marcus how about you um, well I've always been a, a huge Manowar fan the early days Manowar of course um, I also like the Bathory stuff I, I wouldn't say that I'm as big a fan as Manolit probably is because he likes the whole spectrum I guess um, whereas I'm probably more a Twilight of the Gods person um, but yeah I mean of course, this this combination. When I when I first heard um, the first demos, um, and those demos didn't even have vocals. It was just a couple of riffs that he posted on um, on MySpace back in the day. Yeah, MySpace. Can you believe it? Um, you know, of course, those this stuff reminded me of of this heavy battery stuff and and and, and man of war riffing and stuff. Um, so yeah, I was I was drawn to it. Um, but I think what what I liked about this the most is that for whatever reason, the stuff sounded um, like he had some, some vision behind it. Of course, I learned later that his vision was to sound like that and was to, <laughs> to create music in that vein, you know, but, but, you know, from just from the, from the, uh, from, from what I heard, um, I felt that he's, he had this, this kind of vision and he didn't, he, he wasn't ashamed of like, you know, playing a riff that sounded quite man of warish, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, I like that. It, it was bold to some degree, and and yeah, so I, I was drawn to it, and um, I, and also when 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 Manuel and Florian told the story later that you know it was their idea to form the band because they wanted to kind of <laughs> replace it, probably the wrong word, but to you know to step in for for their fallen heroes, if you will. Right. Um, yeah, I I found that a great motivation. Right. Carrying the torch. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, Manuel, you're a doctor and professor of comparative cultural studies and art history. So uh, the fact that your first the Elan first full length Elanian Codex album is the Golden Bough should surprise no one. Uh, <laughs> can you talk about uh, how your educational background has influenced your lyrical themes and the direction of Elanian Codex? Yeah, I think first of all, I think it's important to separate the two the two things. You know, um, Atlantean Codex. Um, doesn't want to educate anyone it's not about um it's not about science it's not about teaching in any any way it's about creating atmospheres it's about um telling great epic stories giving the listeners a chance to escape this quite mundane world we're living in at the moment at least for some time that's the one thing on the other hand um, my profession uh, of course provides me with a lot of ideas um I tend to stumble upon um, old concepts, old theoretical concepts, which are, of course, now in the 21st century, uh, 21st century completely out of date. But nevertheless, they make for great storytelling, especially mm -hmm. the theoretical concepts of the 19th century, uh, which um, the mythological school, um, Fraser, for instance, instance, there's, well, to me, it's um, like walking on a very narrow edge between fact and fiction. Um, it's about uh, creating myth, creating stories, but with some roots, 
you know, in, in real life. Um, because I think this makes them more convincing in a way. This helps to take the listener away and it helps to, to make them come alive more often if you have real points of reverence in history. It's kind of the same um, which H.P. Uh, Lovecraft did, for instance, or Robert E. Howard, mm -hmm. um, who also made up their own worlds, like uh, the Cthulhu mythos or uh, Robert E. Howard with the Hyborian Age, but they tried to include it in a in the real history, in the history of our world by um, adding real places like um, Boston, Massachusetts, for instance, mm -hmm. or Robert E. Howard, uh, who wrote the history of the Hyborian Age as a precursor to to modern age, like um, uh, in, his, in his mind, like 20,000 years ago, the Hyborian age was a real thing. So um, both of them were mixing up fact and fiction, were mixing up mythology with um, places in our real world. And this is what made the story so convincing in a way. It adds a totally new layer to it, uh, which is really sublime. And I think it helps to to take the, um, the listener away into these worlds much more than a pure fantasy uh, story, a high fantasy story with dragons and, um, and elves and knights could do. You know, this uh, rooting them in the real world uh, is like playing with the thought, could it really be? Um, what, what, the, what the hell is he talking about? Is he, is he really serious about it? <laughs> um, is this true? And this is what makes um, people get into the lyrics and they start, uh, they start uh, buying books to re to do some research on these topics we're seeing about themselves and this is a really fascinating thing because uh, a lot of fans told me that they actually uh, bought the golden bow you know mm -hmm. the huge book by fraser and tried to read it and i i, I just said uh, don't please don't <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but it's, it's it's really fascinating and it, it's a sort of world building mm -hmm. based on old um, anthropological and mythological theories from the 19th century, mm -hmm. which are completely out of date, of course, um, and uh, fictional elements and uh, mixing, merging these things together um, to create convincing stories to help people yeah, break through the gates of perception from time to time. Well said. Uh, you mentioned Lovecraft. Uh, Lovecraft himself mentioned the Golden Bow and Call of Cthulhu. Exactly. Uh, and some of your titles, uh, like the White Ship, you know, that just kind of points toward that's some Lovecraftian influence, if I'm correct <laughs> there. So, uh, what's both of your guys' uh, history with uh, weird for fiction, Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard? How did you come across uh, that circle initially? Hmm. Um, well, I uh, it was um, I got into um, Dungeons and Dragons uh, at a very young age, um, probably around. 13 or 14 years of age, um, I saw some some ads in a magazine for Dungeons and Dragons and this got me into this whole fantasy thing. We started playing Dungeons and Dragons and buying um, magazines about role-playing games and, and that's where I stumbled um, upon the Cthulhu mythos um, around that time, 15 years or 16 years, uh, when I was 15 or 16 years old. I bought the first collection of stories by um, Howard Phillips Lovecraft and uh, it got me hooked. And the funny thing, um, back then it was in the early 90s, so before any of us had internet. And uh, it was the same thing with me, um, this fascination, is it real or is it, is it, is it fake, is it fact or fiction? And I had the same thing with Howard uh, Phillips Lovecraft, which made him really fascinating to me because around that time, you know, being 15 years old, 
not having access to the internet, you just couldn't tell if the Necronomicon was real. Right. We didn't. We didn't. Of course, now everyone knows it's it's made up by Lovecraft. But back then, it was really fascinating. Uh, him playing with um, fictional, with mythological elements, but rooting them in the real world. And this added a whole sublime level to his tales, which really hooked me. And so I got into it and did my research. And uh, yeah, I, I still think he's a really important author, despite being a horrible por- person, right. of course. <laughs> but um, his, um, his, his story is creating something wholly new in the world of fiction. The same goes for Robert E. Howard, which I discovered a bit later. And um, my favorite uh, tales uh, written by him are, the, are not the Conan tales, which are great as well, but um, I especially like the, the, the tales about Bran McMorn, the Pictish yes. cycle, because they have the same kind of melancholy and nostalgia you can find in Tolkien's uh, world, you know, the, um, the atmosphere of an older world, which is now um, vanishing into the mists of history against the onslaught of the modern age personified by the Roman armies. And uh, yeah, I found this quite fascinating. And the early Atlantean Codex stuff, which was written around 2005 to 2006, was heavily influenced by Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard and Tolkien, of course. But from then we kind of moved on. And I still love both um, authors, but yeah, the lyrics went into a different direction, right. I guess. Yeah, for me, I mean, I discovered Lovecraft um, much later than, than Manuel. I, for me, it was like some 15, 16 years ago, 2004, something like that, which is interesting because shortly thereafter, I, I met Manuel and, we, and I joined the band. And uh, so when he says the early stuff had a lot of Lovecraft influence, for me, it was all new. And then it also fit perfectly into, you know, everything uh, fit together and then I also had to talk a lot uh, with with Manuel uh, about um, Lovecraft and Lord of the Rings and stuff like that mm-hmm. so we had uh, these things in common and that also built like maybe the foundation you know um, and I was just yeah I, I you know I didn't I didn't know much about him before I started um, actually listening to the stuff because I, I discovered him through some audiobooks that somebody lent me um, and um, yeah I just I really liked the atmosphere and then when I heard the music that Manuel did then it to me this was also something that really just fit perfectly like whether, whether it's Lord of the Rings or Lovecraft for some reason both of it you know fits with with this kind of music um, so yeah that, that was a, a great coincidence so are are you guys fans of any of the Lovecraftian movie adaptions or have you are you familiar with any Yes, um, I especially like the movie adaptions done by the, um, how do you call it, the Historical Society, H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. Okay, yeah. Gotcha. Um, they yeah. did a silent movie, a black and white silent movie uh, of Call of Cthulhu, mm-hmm. which is absolutely brilliant. And uh, they also did one for The Whisperer uh, in Darkness, uh, which, um, yeah, um, is made like a 1930s German expressionist uh, movie, which is also very cool. There's a, a very, very good uh, German adaption, um, which is called Die Farbe, um, which is an adaption of The Color Out of Space. Uh, it's also very strong. And um, yeah, last year's um, The Color Out of Space with Nicolas Cage. Uh, I don't think it's brilliant, but I think it's a must-see. Um, it's a fun uh, movie, I think. It's you a know? fun movie yep. uh, for Nicolas Cage's um, totally weird performance. <laughs> you, you have to see it. The alpacas. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's completely crazy. But, but the, the Lovecraft Historical Society's movies, they are brilliant. They are my highlights, along with Die Farbe from, from the German filmmaker, uh, I think, Wu, 
How about you, Marcus? Uh, nothing to add there. I'm not really familiar with any of the stuff. <laughs> Understood. Uh, <laughs> to be honest, I, I only read, um, um, yeah, I, I would say almost all the, the stories um, and listened to a lot of them, but I haven't seen any, mu any, any movies. Well, according to a lot of people, you're not missing much, so don't. Yeah, no, that's no. what I heard. That <laughs> was probably the barrier here because I, I was like, yeah, should I really spend time on this? To be honest with you, I, I heard a lot of bad things. So yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah, there there are quite a lot of, uh, of movies, but um, it's hard to, to find the pearls, you know. Um, there's another quite fun one from, the, I think, 1970 about uh, the Don Witch Horror, which is a totally B-movie, but uh, it's also quite cool. But it's really hard to find a good Lovecraftian movie. I think the reason is it's, it's really hard to, um, to uh, transfer the atmosphere he's creating yes. stories to a visual medium like a film. Right. You know, we always... He, even Lovecraft himself has a hard time describing all the weird stuff happening in the stories, like right. uh, the thing that cannot be named. Yeah. Most of the monsters are unnameable, so how can you portray them on screen? It kind of takes exactly. away the allure. Yeah, right. That's what I'm, I meant. And also the manner of st storytelling, like a lot of it is, is in, in, in the form of letters and stuff like that. So how do you bring that across in a movie? I mean, mm -hmm. it's because it's part of the, 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 the atmosphere right. that it's creating through that kind of storytelling so i don't know it, maybe for me it was also like i was i was all, always disappointed about for example stephen king movies or most of the time mm -hmm. yeah so i i i was just a bit uh reluctant to have the same experience here i guess yeah. and with lovecraft films specifically are just his prose it it's almost rhythmic and like almost like a pulse. So when you take it out of the written form, it kind of just loses its luster to me, you know, a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it, I think don't think uh, the tales are written for the big screen. Uh, I still hope uh, Guillermo del Toro will one day make mm. his um, adaptation of Mountains of Madness. But uh, in summary, I don't think Lovecraft is uh, the best author for the big screen. Right. Uh, I'd agree. I definitely agree with that. Uh, Manuel, I know you've published a few books on pop culture, but have either of you guys uh, considered writing fiction? Actually, yes. Uh, I started it once a couple of years ago, but I quit after the first few pages. It's not my strong side. I wasn't really convinced by it. So I, I tried to put that kind of um, imaginative energy into my lyrics. Hey, it works. <laughs> I, hope so. I hope so, yeah. I hope it's better than my writing prose. <laughs> I would pay, I'd pay a decent amount of money to get my hands on your story. So if you, if you end up writing the uh, first draft, send it my way. <laughs> oh, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, if, I, if I have lots of time, maybe I'll reconsider writing again, but not at the moment. So when bands blend the literary and storytelling elements and heavy music, it just doesn't get better than that, you know? Is that something that you strive for intentionally? Like you got to have both of those elements? Yes, I, th I think uh, it's important, at least for Atlantean Codex, to have both of these elements, you know, mixing up history with mythology and mixing up fact with fiction. Because, like I said, I think it makes things more convincing. It adds another layer to the lyrics. Um, it's not just um, a fantasy stories about dragons, elves, and uh, whatnot, but people can really dig into it and do their own research. Because some things... Um, really happened and some of the things we're singing about really existed but you know we're just putting some kind of golden veil above it to uh, to hide it from um to don't make it too obvious and to make it not in your face like this 
but uh, give people the chance to discover it for themselves and uh, to add some beauty to it. Most of history is pretty dry and pretty brutal and rough and uh, we'd like to add some some beauty to it, some atmosphere to it, a wider emotional spectrum, you know. And um, so we don't want to give history lessons, but we all, but we also don't want to to write pure fictional in-your-face fantasy stuff. But we try to combine it to, you know, add that that um, that um, additional level to it, and to give people something to discover, something to dig into. Right. And also, it. I mean, this this combination when it comes to the lyrics also gives you the opportunity to add another layer, which is like a visual aspect to the whole thing. Like, you know, designing a great cover artwork, you know, the, the, the cover inlays and stuff like that. And you can, uh, or I don't know, t-shirt motives or whatever it is. Um, there's right. a lot of, uh, a lot of things you can do with this, with this stuff, you know, uh, combined with, of course, the music, which should still be the most important thing of it all. Um, but it's, there's a lot of different, aspects to 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 the codex and and i think that's what also uh, what, uh, that's what draws people towards us you know it, it's it's, mm. it's um the whole package really right exactly it's not just releasing a couple of songs as an album yeah. but yeah giving the people the full package uh, like i said we want to give the people the chance to to break out of this uh, world for one hour and, and also i guess sorry to interrupt i guess what's also What's also different to others, maybe, and and what also attracts people is that you know the the way Manu puts this stuff, it's not a a a very like a, a, a frozen concept, like for example King Diamond stuff, yeah, where you have this concept album where he tells a story and and it's it's that story and nothing right. else. But in 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 our case, I think there's a lot of different ways of you know possible interpretations the listener can interpret whatever they want to into mm -hmm. into the lyrics into the songs and into the whole package if you will um so it's not like we're we're really uh um conceptualize it to a degree that that uh, uh king diamond or others others do when they do a, a real concept album mm -hmm. and, I, and I, but i think that's what i really like about it is is that it, it leaves a lot of room yeah for 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 anybody to to interpret and to yeah kind of create their own stories around the music and the lyrics in, in their heads a choose that, your own that, adventure album about, yeah that that is what it's all about to create their own stories in their head and to take something from the music um this is the most important uh, thing for me as a listener as well mm. um a band can be horrible in a musical way um but if i can take something from it if it if I can, uh, you know, get something from, from it, which helps me in real life, maybe by relaxing or by drawing energy from it, it's great for me. And this is the most important thing to give something to the people um, they can use for their private lives. Um, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien coined a quite um, fitting term for this um, thing, uh, which is uh, adaptation adaptability 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 um and uh, the thing is um he was asked if the lord of the rings is just a metaphor for um, the first world war he was fighting the first world war and so is um is gondor england is uh, mordor the german reich so and uh, he said uh, it can be mm -hmm. if you want it can be but it wasn't what i had in mind and this is what he meant with the term adaptability different people can interpret 
interpreted um, differently in, in different ways and everyone can take something from from it uh, which uh, yeah adds to his real life in a way and this is the same with us we don't want to give you know this uh, straight in your face uh, meaning of one song but uh, people can discover it from themselves and read into it um, what they will which can be dangerous as well of course but um, we'd like to keep it open for anyone well said that's a just a general hallmark of good storytelling that it can adapt with the times and each person can take from it their own sort of imagery exactly yeah. so in 2013 you guys dropped probably uh the most important album in the last decade for my money um the white goddess uh when you guys were recording the album did you have kind of your finger on the pulse and you knew how special it was in the process did you have any inkling when you before you released it Oh, I think we, we never really had the finger on the pulse. It was, <laughs> uh, no, if you mean by that, we didn't reflect on what's happening at in the scene at the moment. We just did our own thing, which was to evolve on the songs of the Golden Bow in a way. Uh, when we recorded it, the recordings were ve were much easier than the recordings for the Golden Bow, which were basically, we did it in a rehearsal space, like a, a one take recording more or less with Marcus flying in from the United States, doing his vocals in like half an hour and flying back to the United States. <laughs> uh, and we had more time with the White Goddess. We had our um, recording a stuff uh, set set up and working and it was much more relaxed and we knew this album would be much better than the golden bar we knew it already back then and uh, i still think it's a much better album than um, than the golden bow and it's pretty close to what we wanted to do with atlantean codex around the time it was i think it's it's like 95 percent um, of what I had in my mind, uh, what Atlantean Codex should sound. When he, when he started out in 2005, mm -hmm. I had this kind of vision what I would like to sound with the band. And I think um, the White Goddess really, really got close to that perfect vision in my head, um, especially um, Enthroned in Clouds and Fire. This is like the Atlantean Codex song, at least for me. I know um, others uh, would pick other songs, but to me, uh, for the vision I had in my head... Um, and thrown in clouds and fire is closest to that vision of what Atlantean Codex should sound like. And I mean, yeah, it's it's always when you when you write songs, and especially with us, um, I, I think you know our songwriting process takes ages, and it took ages for the White Goddess, and it took even longer for um, for the Cause of Empire. But you know, in the beginning, there's always doubt, and you you know you you start listening to the demos or to, to the first riffs or whatever and you're like okay that this sounds pretty good but you know is it going to be a song or are these going to be real good songs because that's the art behind it you know, everybody can probably write a riff or two but then putting them into into a song that's really the that, that's what you got to master really um mm -hmm. especially if you want to tell stories and everything so along the way of course then you listen to the stuff and then that and i remember this especially for the for the cause of empire but also for the white goddess that there was always like for me personally there was a moment when i listened to this stuff and i'm like yeah okay this is this is pretty good i mean i personally really liked it at some point because you know one is changing things back and forth and, and rearranging mm -hmm. things and then you never know but at, at some point i was like okay this is going somewhere this is going to be something i personally at least am gonna like and i'm gonna like or i i like it more than the than the golden bar i'm not saying i don't like the golden bar but you know for right. white it, it, it that's that there was a, a step up yeah um so 
I remember when I when I kind of realized that for myself, and that's always a a great moment when when writing songs or when when some you know your bandmates write songs. It's just when 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 it clicks for you, that's just great. And I even rem remember that point in time stronger for the for the for the cause of empire because it was one one night I was standing in my uh, in my little home studio and I was you know putting some some um, vocals on on some of the on the demos and I was like. I, I was getting goosebumps because I had this moment when I was like, okay, this stuff is, this is cool. I, I'm, I'm, and then you always, there's always this tension if it's only you or if others are also going to like it, you know, that's, right. that's really, um, yeah, it's hard to describe, but uh, of course that's, that's, if then people also like it or, or give you good response or good feedback, that's great. But then there's always this, this time span between when you realize or when you like it and then when others like it, you know. But for the, for the White Goddess, yeah, there was definitely this, this moment in time when I guess we realized that we were creating something that, that yeah, mm -hmm. could, some people could like, let's put it that way. Still so if you don't, there, sorry, I don't. I still think there's not a single weak track on it. Um, where, for instance, uh, the Golden Bow, it has one or two weaker tracks, but uh, we realized pretty soon that The White Goddess was a perfectly perfectly rounded album. It has this flow a real album should have. Um, you know, it's just the full package we right. were talking about. Uh, whereas The Golden Bow has its flaws regarding the sound, regarding, you know, the flow of the album, regarding one or two songs. Um, but The White Goddess is just a full package. And you know, the great things about those imperfections is over time, they just become character. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're full of, we're full of character. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Marcus, if you don't mind me asking, what were you doing in the States uh, back then, going back and forth those times? Were you just living here? Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I um, had a job there. Um, so I went there for my, for my employer uh, and I, I built a so-called high voltage DC transmission system. Oh, uh, well, I, not I built it, but I was uh, in the in the project management team there. Um, so it was a uh, infrastructure project between San Francisco and Pittsburgh, California. Um, so that was for three years in California, and then I spent another two years in New Jersey, um, very close to the Hudson River, um, doing pretty much the same again. And okay. yeah, for the five years I. That was my main occupation there, apart from um, recording and lending coding stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so when the actual feedback from the white goddess starts coming back and it's nothing but positive and people are saying things like I'm saying, how, what's going on internally for you guys? You're just like, holy shit. Well, the holy shit part already started <laughs> with the golden bow because, you know, and that really hit us completely out of nowhere when when in in the big German magazines, the Rock Hard magazine and, and the Heavy magazine at the time, I think in both magazines we were album of the month and for you know complete nobodies like us we were like what the fuck is happening here <laughs> you know, it was out of this world you know so when when it happened again for the white goddess we were like yeah okay that's business as usual no i mean every time it's great every and still you know getting these 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 reactions it's still still unbelievable although we've already experienced a lot of it and and are very thankful for it um yeah, but so so we the first time we experienced this and and this is when it really was was overwhelming was when it happened for the golden ball because it came out of nowhere mm. absolutely nowhere you know we we knew we had this sort of underground fan base we knew we could sell like 500 uh, copies and uh, play some underground gigs in front of 50 people or 100 people but uh, with the golden ball it just 
exploded. And uh, this was the point when we realized um, it's not only, you know, our scene, you know, our underground circle, um, which wants or which likes Atlantean Codex, but it's really probably attractive to a wider heavy metal audience as well. Mm -hmm. So, and when we, when we received the first uh, reviews and this album of the month um, titles, it really blew us out of the water because we didn't expect it at all. It was it just, it, wa it wasn't even our goal at that time. We just wanted to play the music we like <laughs> for the people we like, for the people we know, mo we knew most of our fans back then because everyone who bought a cd from us or a record from us we knew him personally we knew <laughs> her personally but uh this changed um, when the gold bar was released and uh, just um exploded and we sold thousands of copies from the golden bow which is totally incredible incredible in the 2010 years and um was even more incredible with the white goddess when it entered the german album charts which mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, you know, an epic metal album with with songs which are like 15 minutes uh, <laughs> running time, and just going into the charts. Uh, you know, we still have this sort of self awareness that we're just a small band from the backwoods of Bavaria, but uh, suddenly we're there in the German album charts and playing at big festivals, and there are thousands of people cheering at us, and we don't even know these people personally. <laughs> <laughs> These, these are people we haven't bought. They don't buy the album because uh, they want to do us a favor. No, they buy the album because they like our music. So this was like when we realized we have something special there. Great. So in a short amount of time, the Keep It True Festival has pretty much become a show of legend. Um, showcases some of the best uh, heavy metal has to offer. What's been you guys' personal experience performing there and just seeing some of those bands just being sharing the same stage? Uh, hard to describe. I mean, like I said, I wasn't there for the first Keep It True gig, but then um, a couple of years later, we, we had the, the honor to play there again. And then thereafter, another time. So I, I played there two times. And it's... <laughs> It's tough to describe because, first of all, even if those other bands weren't there, I mean, you playing there in front of 2,000 enthusiastic maniacs is just an experience you cannot, you can, it's really hard to describe because for, for this hour you play there, it's almost like you're, you're not really there. You right. know, it, it's at least that, that, that's it for me. Um, uh, often I, I don't really, afterwards, I don't really remember what happened during, during this hour or hour and a half. You know, I, I don't know what, what, what the others were doing. You know, I, I couldn't mm -hmm. tell if Manuel was headbanging or just standing there, for example. <laughs> All that kind of stuff. Um, but anyway, and then adding this atmosphere and, and, this, and, and the fact that there are, I don't know, 20, 25 uh, other great bands and some of which you've been admiring uh, since you were, I don't know, 12 years old or whatever. <laughs> you know, I, I will never forget when we, when we played the Banger Head Festival and there were people like Michael Schenker and, and I think mm. Twisted Sister and, you know, Anthrax, they're standing over there. Oh, look, there's Anthrax and there's Exodus. And, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, okay, where am I here? It's, it's crazy, <laughs> you know? So uh, it's hard to describe. It's just being, being a little uh, kid in the candy store, as you say. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, yeah crazy stuff. Yeah, same for me. Uh, we went to the Keep It True almost right from the beginning. So um, the most surre surreal thing to me was this switch from standing in front of the stage yeah. to standing on a, on a stage. Yeah, this is still, still even to this day, to the last gig we played in, in Dresden or in Leipzig. Oh, shit. In Leipzig. <laughs> sorry, Dresden. Uh, sorry, Leipzig. We played in Leipzig. Uh, it's still a strange feeling for me standing on a stage because I grew up being a fan 
right. and I grew up standing in front of the stage. So it's still to this day a very strange feeling to me standing on the stage doing this thing with Codex. And let's keep it true. I guess it was especially strange because uh, I was standing in front of the stage and I went backstage, got my guitar and got on the stage. And then I got back in front of the stage to, you know, watch the bands again. And, you know, this, this switch with between being a fan and being on stage, it's still very peculiar to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I've always wondered that myself. Um, speaking of the Course of Empire, uh, six year gap in between the White Goddess and the Course of Empire. In in that time, do you guys feel that you've uh, changed or evolved as a musician since the last album to this one? No, we 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 were too busy counting money, laying by the pool, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I devolved as a musician. <laughs> De-evolution. <laughs> yeah, it was devolved because I didn't have the time to play my instrument. And, uh, no, I, I think, of course, it's it's quite natural to evolve as persons. And I'm not sure um, if we, or at least myself, if I evolved as a musician, maybe I... I just, what's the word, perfectionize, is that the word, mm-hmm. to make something perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just thought a lot on the White Goddess album and how can I tweak the little things, you know, to make it even more uh, perfect. Um, this is what uh, I th- I was uh, thinking a lot about in these uh, in these years, but I don't think it's like evolving as a musician. I just have an eye for the detail and um, I try to you know, make it perfect on, on the course of empire. Um, you know, yeah, and of course you evolve as a person, you have different experiences and this all, you know, flows into the album as well, of course. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of natural thing. Yeah, you can't avoid it really to evolve to some degree. You know, it's always the, the sum of your experiences and your, yeah, your your influences and whatever is around you, what kind of music you're listening to, whatever. Yes, and exactly. It's of course, always a bit different from from time to time and from album to album. Um, but I think, I mean, when you when you listen to all three of them, there are still so many like similarities. It, it's it hasn't you know the, the the foundation really hasn't changed. Of course, we've tried to avoid some of the mistakes that we made in the early days. Right. I would say, and uh, we're trying to uh, do things a little better better here and there. Um, which I believe we, we managed to do to some degree. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a fine edge as well, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, staying true to your original style, but on this, on the other hand, evolving in a way and uh, adding something new to the music. And it has to happen naturally if, if, if you force it. Exactly, yeah. you, know, if you say, we need right. to do something different now. We need to um, do a more mature album, for instance. Uh, it will probably sound artificial and it will fail. It, it needs to come naturally. And I think we managed pretty well. As soon as you turn on the golden bar, you can tell it's Atlantean Codex. Uh, it's this, you know, quite unique style we have. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you can also tell while listening to the album, oh, a lot of things have changed. For instance, the sound has changed. It's got more heavier, more like dark influences. But on the other hand, there are more like AOR or hard rock influences, especially in the melodies. So there are things which are in evolving, but within this um, sort of vision, we still want to follow. We don't want to change things um, just to to sound different or to grow big or to, to sell more albums it has to come naturally if it doesn't evolve naturally um it's it's not authentic I, I, people will realize this uh, yeah it's something uh, we managed to avoid so far i guess that's a great answer that's almost verbatim what rich walker of solstice said dealing with you know going from a new dark age to lamentations 
and then mm -hmm. to something like Death's Crown is Victory, you know, it, it, it's a change, but it's a natural progression. And then the fans, the fans can kind of tell the difference if you're just, if it's a natural progression or if you're just trying to be different. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's where many, many, even like big, big names and big bands failed in the past because they, I think they stopped doing what they, what their what their original intention was and then other people told them what to do and and you know uh they they maybe they yeah they, they listened because of uh, the the aspiration of making money or whatever uh, but they, they changed not because they they naturally uh wanted to or or naturally changed but they changed because somebody from the outside told them so and right. i think that's something that that's never going to happen with an codex because we have the luxury just to keep doing what what we're doing or what you know what what Manuel as the main songwriter wants to do um and nobody and, and he doesn't have to listen to anybody and he doesn't <laughs> have to listen to us even and you know he doesn't have to listen to somebody telling him oh you got to release a, a new record next year no if it you know if we don't want to we we just can not do it right uh, and but if we do want to then it's probably because naturally some ideas are flowing and then yeah it, it maybe happens again who knows anyway uh, but uh, there's no pressure from the outside i read an um, an interesting academic paper just yesterday um which uh, said that the taste in music one has um stops to change as soon as you're 31 hmm. uh, which means as soon as you're 31 your taste in music won't evolve <laughs> anymore and we started to spend pretty late um, i think marcus was already in his 30s and we were <laughs> we were close to 30 so we were all already really close-minded on our music vision um, which means um, yeah, we've been listening to this sort of music for the last 30 years you know it's in our blood and that's we're not going to change it so and that's different with younger bands uh, if you start a band when you're 18 or when you're 20 you still have a lot of music to discover and so you release your first albums like vicious trash metal or vicious speed metal and suddenly you discover like Depeche Mode and oh I want to include Depeche Mode elements in our sound so your third album is going to sound like shit obviously <laughs> things like that can't happen to us because we're just too focused on Manowar and Bathory and we <laughs> and yeah you know what I'm trying to say right, uh, yeah, I got listening you. to this, this kind of stuff you know we know our stuff and we uh, just know that we want to play this kind of music and we don't want to include like um, post-punk influences of uh, whatever or hip-hop. <laughs> I, I think that's a very that's a very good point about you know the at the age where you stop um, evolving <laughs> if you will uh, and also I guess maybe subconsciously it might also play a role that you know we, we're still so amazed about having found this niche Yeah, having found a spot where apparently some people like what we're doing, so mm. we're like, okay, why change that? Well, we can we can try and like Manu said, try and perfectionize within a certain um, bucket or whatever. Um, but why would we want to change? If we wanted to do different music, then we probably do it under a different name or you know start right. a new band or whatever. But why would we go far away from what we've done with the Lenny Codex so far? This is a name that stands for something for a certain style or a certain atmosphere or whatever and i i personally just don't feel any uh, you know need to to ch change anything there right. and, and like i said if we if we all or if some of us wanted i mean i i also play in in another band um which makes completely different music just because i also like that other kind of music but right. you know i don't have to pull that into atlantic codex atlantean codex is not changing you heard it here first uh, that's very reassuring <laughs> <laughs> uh, Forget the, you... the influence, Manu. 
leave that out. <laughs> I know you guys have a new member, and I want to apologize ahead of time if I'm about to butcher her name. Uh, Coralia? Coralia. Coralie. 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 Okay, gotcha. So how did her involvement come about, and uh, was she involved for the course of Empire, or did that happen after? Um, no, she actually was involved, but only on one song. You know, the, the switch from uh, Michael Koch to Coralie happened um, during the final days of recording. And uh, uh, she added a couple of leads and uh, solo guitars on the title track. But uh, the other songs were already finished. So this, she's only featured on one track. Well, I know you gentlemen like to take your time, uh, but do you either of you have any other anything on the horizon, any other projects? I know we're not getting another Atlantean Codex to like 2028, possibly. <laughs> First of all, we need to survive 2020. Right. <laughs> yes. One day to go. A lot of shit can happen tomorrow. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> but other than that, um, no, not really. We were looking forward to playing all these live shows in live shows in 2020. This was our like plan for 2020 to tour across Europe and play all these shows in these beautiful cities. But um, then... Yeah, things turn to shit. And now we're kind of trying to make a schedule for 2021 to do these shows. You know, the sad thing is um, we took six years to do this album. And then when we're finally ready to play the live shows, this um, right. pandemic happens. And so we didn't have a chance to promote it on a live stage, which was yeah quite frustrating as well. But I, I we're hoping... Yeah, I think it's fair to say that we were never as motivated as we were before <laughs> yeah. before this shit started we were really looking forward to everything that was that was on the horizon for us uh, and again uh, you know a lot of great festivals many of which we had played before but you know with with uh, i think we were just feeling we we're in the right spot as a band and you know everything was was working out really well and we were playing well together and uh, had fun and you know when you have the opportunity to travel to athens greece or to you know whatever other city in germany or europe it's just a great thing to do when you when you're able to do that because of your music or because of your band right it's just it's just an added uh, layer of fun for traveling yeah if you will so really we're just a travel agency with a with a, with a band <laughs> the um, merchandise department yeah right and, and a merchandise department right <laughs> no, but i mean that, that was really a bummer um so yeah now like i said before trying to keep the spirit spirits up now and um yeah making plans is still really hard at this point you know because in, you, right. you just don't know when things are gonna start up again um so yeah we'll We'll really have to wait and see here. Right. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, I am going to not hold you hostage any longer. My dogs are barking. Uh, <laughs> that means it's time, it's time for me to go. And I thank you so much to both of you for giving me your time. I will make sure to send this over to you when I get it nice and prettied up. Sure, yeah. Thanks for taking your time. Thanks for having us. No, thank show. you, guys. It was a great talking to you, and hopefully it's not the last time. Well, thank That's, you very much. Yeah, for all right, you guys have a great rest of your night. You too. Thanks, Thank you. you. All right, bye-bye now. Cheers, bye.
monsters, madness, and magic.